Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, this is Ray Harris. I wanted to take a moment and bring you up to speed on a few things before we get started with this episode. First, I'm sorry this episode took so long to come out. I'm just getting over an intense head cold and lost my voice literally for a few days. I tried to get the wife to record the material but she wouldn't take a hit for the team, namely you guys and gals, so she's in the doghouse. The upside is that the next episode is almost finished while I've been recuperating and should be out very soon, which is a good thing because it's part two of this episode. Lastly, for those of you who visit the website, I've added a photo page of the major players as well as some maps. It's a rough start, but I'll add on as time permits. Thank you for your understanding. Hello, and thank you for listening to A History of World War II Podcast, Episode 6, Giko Kujo, Part 1. When studying Japan during this time period, it's important to remember that, although Japan adopted Western ways, once they saw the advantages and to be seen as an equal, they did not adopt Western philosophy, morals, or attitudes. To the minds of those covered in these events, they believed they were not controlling anything, but merely riding along with events beyond their control. The cataclysmic events during and after World War I affected the young people of Japan, or Nippon, as the populace called itself. During the war, they gained territory, mostly from Germany, and watched their economy and population soar. Democracy, socialism, and communism were all fighting for their place as political parties emerged in the land of the rising sun and the young people wanted change and modernization. For hundreds of years, Russia and China controlled the area and surrounding coastline of Japan. Then Japan closed itself off from the world in isolationist protectionism and did not engage in the land grabbing as other countries had. Of course, that began to change in 1853 when American Commodore Matthew C. Perry opened Japan by force for some trade, but mostly for needed coaling stations. But once the door was open, even if by force, Japan enthusiastically copied Western ways, much like they did Chinese developments hundreds of years before. 
They copied mass production, and through that, the ability to create a strong army and navy for protection, then use that army and navy to join the world's game of forced diplomacy. In just a few short decades, Japan controlled most of the Korean peninsula and in 1894 defended their gains in a war against China. They easily defeated the Chinese armies and then added Formosa and the southern tip of Manchuria with its important seaports to their area of influence. But Russia, Germany, and France pressured Japan to give up most of the land they had acquired in these recent conflicts. The European powers did not want to share what was then considered their Chinese melon that they had been plundering for decades. And of course, they did not see Japan as an equal. Japan's pride was understandably hurt, and within a decade, hostilities emerged between Japan and Russia. Japan stunned the world when they defeated two Russian naval forces, as well as a Russian army. These victories allowed Japan to reclaim Port Arthur, as well as other ports, the lifeblood of any island nation. They also got the Russian railways in southern Manchuria. This acquisition would prove to be the first unexpected step to a long, brutal war with China and end in a Japanese defeat at the hands of the U.S. Japan did not invade the remainder of Manchuria, which was larger than California, Oregon, and Washington combined. All they wanted was respect from the other imperialist countries for their strength and sophistication. They invested heavily into their part of Manchuria and made the area peaceful enough for settlement and trade. Whether consciously or not, during the westernization of Japan, there was a massive population explosion that raised the figure to 80 million on their four main islands of Hokkaido, Honshu, Koyushu, and Shikoku. Of course, the economy could not absorb these numbers, and the result was an incredibly high unemployment. Also, farmers struggled with the low food prices, and they began to organize for the first time in history. There emerged left-wing political parties and unions concerned for the suffering of the masses. In reaction to this, right-wing nationalist organizations were created. Some of the right-wing parties were radical pro-emperor parties that spoke of protection of self through strength. This idea was expanded from the individual to Japan versus other countries and then to Asian versus non-Asians. Some wanted to go as far as a dictatorship with the accompanying conservative financial and cultural programs, but the majority of the groups had in common at the very least an anti-Western attitude as well as the desire to fight poverty and the protection of national pride. So the young men left for military service, but it was their parents and families that suffered due to their absence. A lot of these new officers and enlisted men blamed the politicians and their superiors for the troubled times. Some joined secret organizations that either wanted change through subversion or assassination. These mutinous acts would mirror those of the shogun of the 15th century when they took power from the emperors. Supposedly, the insubordination was carried out for the good of all, and tradition had legitimized such criminal acts and was given the special name of Gigo Kujo. The acts were still criminal, but had sympathy on their side and therefore lightly punished. By 1928, this feeling of unease and desire for change was manifested in Japan-controlled Manchuria. Two staff officers of the Kwantung Army stationed in Manchuria believed that the land around them was the only answer to Japan's problems. Colonels Ishihara and Itagaki saw all the issues answered before them. Unemployment, needed farmland, raw materials, and a ready market for finished goods. To their minds, 
All that was needed was the courage to act with force. And didn't Japan already prove its ability to defeat Chinese troops? At the time, the vast majority of Manchuria was controlled by the Chinese warlord Marshal Chang So Lin. For the colonels, he was the first obvious obstacle. But for the more noble-minded Japanese, Manchuria was seen as a starting point for Asian democracy and as a buffer against Russia, Asia's rival. Ishihara and Itagaki couldn't believe that the powers that be in Tokyo could not see their vision and approve their plans. But the emperor and the war ministry would not open aggression for the simple fact that a land battle in China or any other large area could not be won unless the enemy could be defeated quickly or at least not allowed to escape into their hinterland, thus trading space for time. According to a maxim of Napoleon, it is not a victory if your enemy's forces are intact while you capture city after city. Hitler adhered to this maxim at first, but lost sight of it during the Russian campaign and suffered accordingly. The two officers decided to take the first step at Giko Kucho by removing the warlord Marshal Chang. On June 4, 1928, Chang's train was assaulted with dynamite, and he was fatally wounded. Of course, when Tokyo heard of this, they warned the two belligerent colonels to stop, but were ignored. After rebuffing their superiors, Itagaki and Ishihara used their troops as a private army, expanding their operations and preparing for a much larger offensive. The two rebel leaders continued on, but Tokyo vacillated. But by the summer of 1931, the war ministry dispatched a general to tell the two to stop face to face. But the general that was sent was diverted by geishas, or more correctly, let himself be diverted, so he would have some excuse to offer his superiors when he got home. In truth, he agreed with the operations and volunteered for the mission to give the colonels more time. Soon after this, the two leaders were ready to step up their operations. The arrival of the general was easy to deal with, but obviously Tokyo was becoming firmer in their stance. Sort of. The rebel leaders decided to use explosives again on a bridge near the 7th Chinese Brigade. The chaos would then be used by them as an excuse to send in troops to restore order. For whatever reason, the dynamite did little damage, so the Japanese troops were sent to attack the Chinese barracks. The city of Mukden was captured. The world was shocked. Was this war or not? And if not, what was it? Tokyo was the most shocked, and again told the officers to limit the scope of their actions. Again, they were ignored. Different societies in Japan approved of this action and decided to help it along at home. The Cherry Society planned numerous murders of politicians and court officials and then would apologize to the emperor by killing themselves on the palace steps. But with so many people involved, someone talked and there were numerous arrests on October 17, 1931. The Japanese people were split on the issue and those arrested, although guilty of planning mass murder, were giving light sentences. The officials in Tokyo assumed that the Kwantung army would see the light sentences as a compromise and again asked the rebels to limit hostilities. Again, they were ignored and the rest of Manchuria was taken. This was Giko Kujo on a massive scale. The reform parties and secret societies could not agree amongst themselves on how to expand the area under their control in China. The control group wanted all of China, but the Imperial Way only wanted a developed Manchuria. Both believed their plan was possible, but they did agree on protecting their gains from Russia and that the military should lead some sort of reform to cure the selfish, corrupt politicians. 
Of course, some radical nationalists still wanted to use assassination as their tool and killed the finance minister and the president of Mitsui in March of 1932. The trial, like Hitler's and Mussolini's, was sensationalized, and the accused were given time to make speeches. They were found guilty, but were pardoned after a few short years. The torch of rebellion had been lit and only burned brighter after this. On Sunday, May 15, 1932, nine army and naval officers forced their way into the Prime Minister Inukai's suite. The Prime Minister was a small 75-year-old man with a calming presence. He used his influence now and began to talk to the would-be assassins. However, one of the men who had gotten lost rushed into the room and yelled, No talking! Fire! And everyone began firing. The Prime Minister, who had opposed the conquest of Manchuria and refused to recognize the providence Manchu Kuo, or State of Manchu, died. The officers then left to attack police headquarters, but since it was Sunday, there were few officers to fight. They threw a few bombs that shattered windows, and the coup was over. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The rebellion was called 515 after the date it occurred and gave Japan three more sensational trials, one for the civilians involved, one for the army, and one for the navy. Once again, the sympathy was with the killers, and the people applauded when one rebel said they carried out the acts to warn the country about the corruption. On a more gruesome note, 110,000 petitions came in asking for clemency for the murderers all written and signed in blood. Also, nine young men said they would take the place of the accused when punished. To show their sincerity, a jar of alcohol was sent with a note containing the nine little fingers of the authors. Again, the men were found guilty, but given very light sentences. The country erupted in joy at the sentences, but also in anger that they were found guilty at all. Only respect for Emperor Hirohito stopped radicals from attempting a complete communist revolution, and for the next few years, the public seethed for change, waited for someone to take the lead, especially in handling the economy that had suffered since the Great Depression in America. Silk, Japan's main export, had dropped in price by more than 50%. The next killing, followed by another sensational trial, happened in August 1935. A Lieutenant Colonel Azawa was upset that his hero, General Mazaki was dismissed from his post as Inspector General of Military Education. He saw the sacking as more corruption and snuck into the back of the Army General Staff Headquarters. He found General Nagata, a foe of his beloved 
Mazaki and ran him through with his sword. The first two thrusts missed, but as Nagata tried to run away, Azawa's sword was true, and Nagata was pinned to the door. It was another dramatic trial, and became the focal point for the young officers waiting for something to happen. Azawa was treated carefully by the judges, but he returned again and again to his defense that although he did commit the murder, it was for the good of the country. He attacked politicians and business leaders. He stood up for the farmers and deplored Japan's weak diplomacy, namely Japan's naval limitations, that had a ratio of five American or British ships to Japan's three. At the end of the trial, on February 25, 1936, the defense counsel stated, If the court fails to understand the spirit which guided Colonel Azawa, a second or third will appear. The next day, the leaders in the most ambitious coup planned yet were ready. The first victim would be the new Prime Minister, Okada. He was hosting a celebration of a recent election victory for the House of Representatives five days earlier. The previous Prime Minister, Saito, resigned due to another scandal, and Okada was asked by the Emperor to form a cabinet. He was honored to do so, but honestly he was tired of the struggle and wanted to retire. Other targets would be the recently demoted Saito, who was now the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal, as well as the Finance Minister and the Grand Chamberlain to the Emperor. One of the would-be rebels was Captain Koda. He woke up his unsuspecting men at 4 a.m., on February 26, and got them ready. His part of the plan was to seize the war minister's official residence and force high-ranking officers to support the coup. The second group would seize police headquarters, always a prudent move, and other groups would carry out the assassinations and then move on to more killings if things went well, including the last Genro, an elder statesman, and the emperor's closest advisor, Prince Sionji. The Prime Minister's residence was assaulted and taken over. The police tried to force the rebels out, but were easily pushed back. Now the rebels made their demands. They wanted political and social reforms. In detail, they wanted the control group leaders arrested, who wanted to take all of China. Then they wanted certain Imperial Way followers put into key positions, and one of their own in charge of the Kwantung Army in Manchuria. Finally, they wanted martial law declared in Japan, to regulate the corruption out of the country. The finance minister was killed, and Grand Chamberlain Suzuki was shot several times, but lived. The rebels mistook the prime minister's brother for the official and killed him. The real prime minister, Okada, was hidden in a closet by housemaids. The inspector general for military education was killed, but the emperor's closest advisor, Prince Saonji, was constantly moved around and saved. Certain sections of Tokyo were held by rebel soldiers, and they handed out their manifesto, complaining about corruption of politicians and political parties, but the police recovered almost every copy. Okada's main secretary, Sakumizu, was allowed to move around because the rebels thought his boss was dead. He went to the emperor's palace and informed the emperor, through an assistant, that Prime Minister Okada was still alive. Sakumizu then visited ranking officials of the army and navy who had gathered together to see what unfolded. The older men were vacillating and opportunistic. They did not like the idea of rebellion and the specific actions taking place, but they agreed with the rebels' objectives, so did nothing. Wisely, Sakumizu did not tell them the Prime Minister was still alive. But the vacillating army officers knew something had to be done because rebellion was occurring and laws were being broken by their troops. They sent the rebels a letter 
that stated the rebels' concerns had been heard and that they would see what they could do. Then they tried to give the rebels a way out by putting the 1st Division on station in Tokyo. The 1st Division was the one rebelling and already stationed in parts of Tokyo. Koda, now the rebel leader, knew that many within the military agreed with him and pushed forward his agenda. He replied if their demands were met, they would obey. If not, they would not leave. While this was going on, Interior Minister Goto got himself appointed Prime Minister. While the War Minister, who believed this rebellion was organized by forces outside of the military, wanted martial law. But the others in the cabinet worried that this would lead to a military dictatorship, so voted no. Goto wanted this settled within the army. Prime Minister Okada's secretary, Sakamizu, participated in a ruse that involved putting the believed dead Prime Minister into a coffin and taking it to Okada's residence. Sakamizu then got word to the cabinet that Okada was still alive. The cabinet wanted him to get to the emperor right away, but the newly appointed Goto did not agree. He blamed the rebellion on Okada and said he should resign if he was still alive. The cabinet, not stuffed with men of conviction like the rebels or Sakamizu, were afraid that the rebels would find out about Okada still being alive and that they knew and killed them. The situation calmed down and settled into a stalemate. Now that the rebellion was a few days old, it was being called the 226 incident. The military leaders were still on the fence, so finally a frustrated Emperor Hirohito acted. He would stop the rebellion himself, he declared. This moved the army officials because the emperor rarely spoke directly about anything due to his power over the people. When he spoke, it was a voice of the divine. The ranking army officers issued an edict at 5.06 a.m. on February 28th that ordered the rebels, in the emperor's name, to stand down. If they did not withdraw by 8 a.m. the next day, they would be fired upon. Naturally, the rebels were split in their decision. Some did not want to offend the emperor, but the others did not believe the message came from the emperor himself, but from the control group. The emperor reigned. He did not rule. He did not get involved. He was a deity, not a man to mingle in worldly affairs. The newly appointed Goto still refused to conduct Okada to see the emperor, so Sakamizu took Okada to the household ministry, where the emperor had his residence. Finally, Okada was before the emperor. The emperor thanked Okada for his service so far and told him to continue his duty. Prudently, Prime Minister Okada stayed that night in the household ministry. Despite the emperor's edict, most of the rebels, for that was what they officially were now, refused to withdraw. The rebels entrenched as naval personnel surrounded them. On February 29th, at 6 a.m., the rebels were given one more chance to leave. They did not. Soon the rebels could hear bombers flying low over them. The planes had bombs on board, but only dropped leaflets that told the soldiers to return to base, that their families were ashamed by their actions, and that the soldiers faced death. Soon they heard loudspeakers blaring the same information. The accumulative effect on the soldiers soon drained them of their conviction, and one by one, or in small groups, the rebel soldiers walked away from their positions. Soon only the leaders were left, but still the soldiers who had remained loyal did not attack the reduced would-be mutineers. The loyalists were hoping to give the rebel leaders enough time to act like samurai and commit seppuku. The leaders did consider this, but then decided on a court-martial so they could tell the nation of the corruption. At 4.40 p.m. on the afternoon of the 28th, Sakomizu assembled the mourners at the Prime Minister's house and told them the truth of Okada's escape and that, in fact, the 
Prime Minister's brother, Matsuo, was in the coffin. To foreigners, this was just another ultra-nationalist mutiny. Only the Soviets, due to their incredible spy network, knew that this event would lead to an expansion in China. Known only to a few, the Russians were supporting the communists and nationalists in China who were engaged in a civil war. China, eventually falling to communism, was the Soviet Union's greatest diplomatic and political coup. Stalin handled most of the details himself. Next time, we'll see the Japanese army further involve itself in politics, eventually wanting power not to help the nation, but to control the direction of the country. The Manchuria question slash possible solution remains a source of tension for the Japanese government, and a three-way war between the Chinese nationalists, the Chinese communists, and Japanese forces commence.